Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. My conversation today is with John Wilsey, Assistant Professor of History in Christian Apologetics at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. His book, American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion, Reassessing the History of an Idea. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. My conversation today is with John Wilsey, Assistant Professor of History in Christian Apologetics at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. His book, American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion, Reassessing the History of an Idea, published by IVP Academic, is the topic of this show. The book is a work of historical political theology and examination of exceptionalism that many Americans have held as true and compatible with the evangelical faith. Exceptionalism, as part of civil religion, has its roots in several theological ideas, including the Puritan concept of covenant, providence, and millennialism. These theological ideas were extracted from the Bible and applied to the American nation, married to republicanism, and championed by 19th century historians. Through its history, exceptionalism was reinforced by Western expansion, slavery, and the rise of the U.S. as a global power. National leaders have espoused notions of chosenness, divine commission, innocence, sacred land, and glory. All these ideas have been challenged by critics and charged with exclusivity, racism, and hubris. Wilsey does not reject America as exceptional in world history. Instead of a strong and closed exceptionalism that is blind to national failure, he reconstructs an open exceptionalism that rejects the appropriation of biblical language for America, allows for vigorous critique, and seeks to maintain the independence of the Christian faith from nationhood. Wilsey's open exceptionalism provides a place to be both patriotic and critical of America and offers an inclusive, liberal, and pluralistic notion of the idea. His analysis is illuminating to both Christian and secular readers on the theological foundation of exceptionalism whose legitimacy has come under vigorous questioning. Here is my conversation with John Wilsey. Now let me introduce you to the author, John Wilsey. John, welcome to the show. Hi, Lillian. Thanks. It's good to be here. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book is filled with complex concepts that you patiently unpack for the reader But before we get into all those concepts and those ideas in the book, which there are a lot of them there, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion. Yeah, well, I'm from uh, Georgia, and I uh, did my my undergraduate work at Furman University in history, and I studied studied philosophy and theological studies at Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest. And I got interested in American Exceptionalism as I was writing my dissertation. Um, I wrote on Christian America, the Christian America thesis, and I looked at how it was um, articulated from about 1977 
uh, when the light and the glory came out uh, by Peter Marshall and David Manuel, uh, coinciding with the formation of the moral majority uh, up to about 2007. And so I looked at all the literature. I mean, it was a slog. <laughs> That's a lot of stuff. And it's also very frustrating to read. But I looked at all that literature. Um, I examined it. Um, I did a, a brief history of religious freedom in America, but then I also critiqued the Christian America thesis on historical, theological, and philosophical grounds. And just in, in doing that dissertation, um, I noticed that American exceptionalism continued to come up. In fact, exceptionalism is really entailed in the Christian America thesis, um, at least as it was articulated you know, in the last 50, 40 or 50 years or so. Um, so that got me interested in it. I couldn't deal with it a lot in the dissertation. It was sort of a rabbit trail at that point. But I, I came back and, and was interested enough in it to, to write another book on it. Well, you talk, you, you connect uh, first, what is American exceptionalism for our, our audience who may not know? And how is that tied to civil religion? Are they the same thing? Is it part of one thing? Yeah. What yeah. Is, how, does, how are they related? Yeah. So American exceptionalism is just the, the, the notion that America is um, the greatest force for good in world history. Uh, that's something that um, um, Dick Cheney. Uh, said in an op-ed he wrote in the, Was- in the um, Wall Street Journal last fall. That's one of the re- ways he characterized it, the greatest force for good in, in, in world history. Um, others have talked about it being, you know, um, that America is the, the greatest nation in the world, uh, the, most, the most powerful economically, politically, uh, the most influential, um, you know, cultural, social force, um, that America is the exception to the rule um, from all other nations. In fact, it's often, often expressed in more negative terms than it is in positive terms, that we're not, we're not, uh, you know, we're not uh, a, a society that has a feudal history, for example. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of known by our disassociation with European traditions and those kinds of things. Um, and, and, and exceptionalism is really, it can, you know, can be seen from a historical angle. It can be seen from a political angle, a social angle, or a theological angle. And so what I try to do in the book is is differentiate between these these different ways that you can see exceptionalism. And also, isn't it the idea that also that America is exceptionally good? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's definitely the assumption, um, you know, in, uh, in, you know, if, if you there's a there's a pretty wide body of, of sociological writings on exceptionalism. I'm thinking of someone like Seymour Martin Lipset, who wrote a couple of books on exceptionalism. Um, and he, he, when he looks at it from a sociological standpoint, you know, it's not necessarily that American exceptionalism means it's always good. In fact, he calls it a, famously calls it a double-edged sword, where he looks at the positive aspects. You know, he, he talks about, uh, you know, libertarianism, laissez-faire, um, equal rights, and that kind of stuff. Those are good. But then on the other hand, you know, America has the largest rate of incarceration, you know, of, of any developed country, for example. Um, and so there, there are also negative aspects of it, too. Now, you've put this to, into a broader umbrella of civil religion. Yes. What is civil religion? That's the first question. The second question that's attached to that, don't all countries think that they're special? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great, that's a great point. And um, in terms of civil religion, um, I'm going to just look and, and, and find a couple of places in my book where I describe civil religion. Um, civil religion is, um, you know, it's a, it's a term that, um, comes into, uh, the conversation by, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the French philosopher in the 18th century, 
um, is probably one of the first people to use the term civil religion um, in his social contract. Um, but more recently, um, an article that was written by uh, a, a scholar named Robert Bella called Civil Religion in America for a journal called Daedalus in 1967 sort of opens up the discipline of civil religion, the study of civil religion. Um, more, and more recently even than that, an, another scholar from Manhattanville College, um, Peter Gardella, wrote a book-length treatment on American civil religion back in 2014. And here's how I, here's how I define um, civil religion in, uh, uh, in my book. I say civil religion is a set of practices, symbols, and beliefs distinct from traditional religion yet providing a universal values paradigm around which the citizenry can unite. Um, so, and Peter Gardell talks about it in terms of texts, monuments, um, places. Uh, so like when you go to the Lincoln Memorial, for example, the Lincoln Memorial is a civil religious place, you know? I mean, it's, it's modeled off of a Roman temple. You know, you walk in and it's an awesome s- s- statue. The inscription above his statue says, um, you know, uh, in this temple, as in the hearts of his countrymen, for whom he saved the Union, the memory of Abraham Lincoln is enshrined forever. So shrine is used forever, eternity, uh, temple, uh, the hearts of his countrymen. These are all civil, they're all religiously, uh, you know, religiously informed words, but it's not a salvific religion. It's not a religion of salvation. It is trans, it's casting the nation in transcendent terms, but it's not like it's not salvation we're talking about, right? And so exceptionalism, I, I would say, because I'm, I'm a religionist, is is like a doctrine, a dogma of of civil religion. Um, it, it's a it's a an aspect, a feature of civil religion. It's not, um, you know, like you, like you said a second ago, it's it's this piece of civil religion. Now, we I just I just said before that all nations think that they're exceptional in sure. some way. Exactly. Uh, if you travel at all, you know, people say, well, you know, Argentines are this way. All uh-huh. British people are this way. Right, uh, right. And we have, this is our tradition. What is, what is different about American exceptionalism? Why are we worried about it? If all countries have some sense of that they are special in some way, mm-hmm. why should we be concerned about it? What is the issue? Mm. Well, that's a great point. There's another great book I'll recommend to the listeners. Um, many, many are probably already familiar with it. Anthony Smith, uh, Chosen Peoples. Um, I forget the subtitle. Got that book laying around here. But uh, but what he does, he looks at the history of the notion of chosenness, um, of exceptionalism, if you will. He doesn't really call it that, but he goes all the way back to the fourth century Kingdom of Armenia. Um, you know, before before Constantine even comes comes to the uh, to the throne in the Roman Empire who consider themselves, you know, a chosen people. And, and he looks at, he looks at um, the history of this concept, uh, the British, the French, the Russians, the Italians, um, even, even the uh, Vortrekkers of South Africa see themselves in this exceptional way. And that's a fascinating history. I mean, that's something that I'd, I'd, I'd like to do as another project. And, look and, a, at lot the of that, and a lot of that comes also from the notion that their nation or their group or their tribe is tied to some god. Exactly. It's always got this very religious baggage along with it, which is really, really interesting. Um, so, so what's different about our exceptions? Well, you know, historically, there are things that Americans can say that really are exceptions to the rule in terms of our origins. Um, for example, you know, America is a nation that comes into being. It, it's, it's formed um, after the Enlightenment, but before the Industrial Revolution. That's exceptional. 
Um, it's, a, it's also exceptional in that it's the first country to declare independence from a mother country. It's the first country to be to base itself on ideals, like in the Declaration of Independence, for example. Um, and those are all good things. Those are all good things. But it's also exceptional historically in bad ways as well. Um, the the the, um, uh, the institution of chattel slavery goes on longer in America as a as a uh, Western country, more, you know, beyond far beyond the British and the French, who who of course abolished it um, decades before the United States gets around to it. Um, so that's uh, that's another aspect of exceptionalism. It's a negative thing. Um, it, why does it matter? I mean, it's like uh, that's a that's a that's a good question. I mean, should it matter? Um, anyway, we, we can talk further about let that. Let me let me ask you. Uh, let me just suggest this. Does it matter because yeah. to us, and so much attention has been given to American exceptionalism. You see it a lot in the in historical literature. People who are writing about America, they kind of throw that in. Sometimes they don't really tell you what it means. But do you think it's because America has had so much power, uh, mm. economic, political power, that when we think we're exceptional, it makes a lot of difference yeah. in the world because we have like a yeah. big footprint, you know? That's right. That's right. For better or for worse. Right. And so like Madeleine Albright, when she was Secretary of State, she called famously called America the indispensable nation, right? And so the notion here is that if, if America withdraws from the world, you know, all Hades is going to break loose, right? Um, you know, America is this stabilizing force that ensures the peace of the world. Um, you know, and that, that's probably a debatable principle. But, you know, when you look at it historically, the British filled that role in the 19th century. The British were the arbiters of world peace in the 19th century um, up until World War I. And then the United States took, took, took that role on itself after World War II. So it's not like... America is the first country in the world to ever do this or ever see itself in that in that term. Um, the British certainly saw themselves in that way as well. Um, but I guess it matters because, um, you know, I think America does play a pretty has, has historically played an essential role in, in world affairs since World War Two continues to play a major role. The other countries of the world look to us. And so, you know, does it does it matter? I, I, that's, you know. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. Let's, okay, let's go on. You have you describe two forms of exceptionalism in your book, open and closed. You spend a lot of time unpacking closed uh, exceptionalism. So we're going to talk more about that first, and then we'll talk about open exceptionalism. Okay. So what is what are the theological? Because your book is a book of historical political theology, and you're not just a historian, but you're also a theologian. So you're going to unpack. Uh, some of the, the theological roots of this. Yeah. What are the theological origins of American exceptionalism? And have they been, sec have those uh, origins been secularized over time? Yeah. yeah. So that they're no, but originally some of these ideas uh, that you talk about were very much extracted from the Bible, directly from the Bible. Yeah. Talk definitely. about that a little bit. Okay. So in, in one of my chapters, my first, second, second chapter, I guess it is, um, I look at uh, the chapter is called The Origins of American Exceptionalism. Um, and in terms of religious origins, uh, I look at theological roots and as well as exegetical roots. So in the preaching, particularly in the revolutionary period, um, the Puritans uh, coming over to, um, uh, to New England, they found the New England colonies in the 1630s, 1640s, in that period of time. Um, they... I see themselves uh, very much in 
theologically significant terms. They see themselves as participating in salvation history. Uh, they don't, they don't think that salvation history ends with the book of Revelation in the first century. They see them, they see God's program for saving, uh, the nations as being continuing on and that they're playing a very important role in it. And so they see themselves as, as the new Israel. They see, um, New England, the, the, uh, North American continent as a new Canaan. Um, they, they see themselves as being chosen by God for a, a particular errand in the wilderness, as they, as they, as they called it. Um, and so, you know, what I look at in the book is, is their particular view of, of millennialism, um, their view of typology, um, how they see themselves as antitypes to biblical types, how they, the fulfillment of, of, of biblical symbols. Um, and in, in terms of the exegetical part, in terms of the preaching part, um, you know, this, uh, this theology, this, this Puritan theology that develops in the, in the 17th century in New England develops around real Whig ideology, which is a political, uh, a political philosophy that comes out of the English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution. But, it, but, but Puritan theology and real Whig ideology merge. And the preaching in the American colonies, especially during the Revolution, um, continues to see, they continue to see themselves, Americans continue to see, see themselves as antitypes to biblical types. So, for example, um, the, the Puritans would have seen themselves uh, as, as the fulfillment of the children of Israel in the Exodus. Um, in the preaching of the Revolutionary Period, uh, the American colonists are sort of the, of the antitype of the original type of the children of Israel. Uh, Moses and Aaron, um, Nicholas Street, in a sermon he gives in 1777, uh, looks at uh, George Washington as the, as the antitype of Moses. Um, Britain is the antitype of Egypt. Um, the wilderness is the antitype of the trial of, a uh, time of trial and testing in the wilderness. Um, the Tories, um, would be antitypes of, uh, the Egyptians or, or Sanballat in the book of Nehemiah, uh, or Haman in the book of Esther. Uh, the Red Sea is an antitype of the military struggle that the colonists were going through with, with the British. George III is an antitype of Pharaoh of Egypt. Um, and so, you know, we, we can, we can sort of trace the notion of, uh, religious exceptionalism back in this way to the colonial period when they see themselves in these uh, anti-typical uh, ways. Now, your concern in the book is not just the political implications of this exceptionalism, um, how this plays out in American history, because you, you spend a lot of time talking about uh, uh, slavery and the effects on African Americans throughout America, the expansion into the West, uh, those, those kinds of implications. But you're also concerned, I think, um, in what this does to the Christian faith itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. What is that concern? Okay, so when I when I look at the religious aspects of exceptional, closed exceptionalism, I call it. I notice that you know historically, important theological commitments that are rooted in Christianity, informed by Scripture and the Christian tradition, are appropriated in American exceptionalism. I, I, I even use the word hijack. Uh, into American sense. So, so the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is an Old Testament doctrine. It's a, it's a New Testament doctrine. I mean, there's a lot of different uh, elements there we could talk about. But this is a, these are Christian theological themes, and they're sort of applied to Americans. 
in a, and I think that that does damage to the faith. Um, for, for one thing, it's just not true. It's just not right. Um, another thing, it, it, it takes the emphasis off of the redemption that is purchased for us, I believe, by Christ on the cross um, through in his resurrection, through his death, burial, and resurrection. And it makes America, you know, somehow, um, you know, an agent of salvation, sort of a, a temporal salvation or, a, or even a secular salvation. I think that does great damage to the faith and it's confusing to people. I think, I think uh, particularly Protestant Christians who buy into this closed form of American exceptionalism associate uh, the Christian faith with, you know, Americanism. And I think that's really dangerous. I think it leads to idolatry. Now, you've got, uh, you talk about several expressions of Amer- national exceptionalism uh, one of the ones you first talk about is the idea of a chosen nation. Mm. And what has this belief wrought for us in American history? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, if, if, we, if, if we consider ourselves to be a chosen nation, well, it gives us carte blanche to do whatever we want. We're God's chosen people. Um, we represent God in, on the world stage. Um, we are the except, uh, exceptions to the rule in terms of, you know, the life of and the you know, uh, you know the, the conditions in the world that, that affect other other countries where we're exempt to all those kinds of things. It, it leads to a a great national arrogance, um, leading us to be to to sort of think of ourselves as invincible. I think we saw that. I think we see some of the ramifications of that, particularly during the Korean and, and Vietnam wars. Now, uh, the, then you go on and talk about. United States uh, or America being a commissioned nation, and you be, you talk a little bit about President Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, and his yeah. role in sort of um, underwriting this idea. Right. And right. then you, you go into John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State during the height of the Cold War. How yeah. did this commissioned nation concept uh, work in their in their thought? How did yeah. they express that, Wilson and Dulles? <laughs> Yeah, so Wilson sees America in messianic terms. And in fact, he, he uses the language. He says America will save the world. He, he uses the language of, of Messiah to describe America. Um, and of course, the context is the First World War, which is this enormous cataclysm that no one, you know, no one in the world had ever seen before. So it sort of invites this kind of um, apocalyptic millennial language because World War I was so incredibly, enormously destructive. And, of course, America steps into the conflict and breaks the stalemate and makes the difference uh, for Allied victory. Um, you know, Wilson, being a, a Southern Presbyterian, uh, already see, has a very strong notion of um, uh, religious exceptionalism. He, he, he uses the term manifest destiny uh, when he talks about America's involvement in the First World War and its role uh, bringing about the Allied victory. And so he sees himself, he sees himself, he sees the United States very clearly fulfilling a messianic role in the uh, completion of World War I and then also um, in the formation of the League of Nations um, in the Treaty of Versailles to bring about and usher in the the millennium, um, a a period of of universal peace. He really believes that he he is ushering that in and that America is indispensable to that. In terms of John Foster Dulles, Dulles is really interesting because Dulles was just a young man. He was a, a student at Princeton when he went to the to uh, observe the Versailles Conference with his uh, with his uncle. His his uncle was, um, um, uh, I believe, it was Secretary of State Lansing under under Wilson, 
and um, he goes with his uncle to uh, to observe uh, Versailles. And he's sort of he's a young man. He's I think in his early twenties, and he's you know filled with idealism himself. World War II gets underway. Um, he's in, he's very instrumental in the formation of the United Nations in 1945 and 1946, um, and as Secretary of State under Eisenhower. Um, at the beginning of the Cold War, he believes that nationalism and these old nationalistic uh, ideals of the West are sort of outdated. They get us into world wars. And so he he's a very much, uh, early on, he's very much a, an advocate of internationalism and international cooperation. But with the rise of the Soviet Union, he sees that the Soviet Union is is threatening to throw away and to undo everything that, you know, the United States had fought for in World War II. So he sort of sees... Um, Internationalism is his larger goal, but he believes that nationalism is going to have to continue in order to defeat the Soviet threat, what he called godless communism. So as Secretary of State, uh, he saw um, the conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union in the early days of the Cold War in very Manichaean terms, that uh, the United States represents the forces of good, the Soviet Union represents the forces of evil, and he is going to pursue a foreign policy and be very influential in this uh, with Dwight Eisenhower. Um, that the world is cast in these very Manichaean terms. Now, um, this this whole commission nation and chose they, they kind of go together, chosen nation, commission they nation, do. and then then you go and you start talking about um, national innocence, and you and mm. the, the the showpiece of this chapter is Ronald Reagan, right? Which, if you think about Ronald Reagan in the imagination of many people today, he's sort of this innocent American. He yeah. He, everything was good about Ronald Reagan. He was good. Yeah. That's okay? right. That's right. Which kind of matches his his whole uh, idea about national innocence. What yeah. is that? I mean, uh, how how is that argued or justified or expressed? Yeah. Well, you know, Reagan talked about uh, America being the shining city on a hill. He used that language a lot, and most famously, perhaps, in his farewell address that he gave just a few days before. The end of his term in 1989, January 1989, I think January 12th is when he gave that speech. Uh, we, we cast America as the shining city on a hill where the, uh, the, you know, the biblical image, of course, comes from Matthew chapter 5, you know, where Jesus tells his disciples, you're the city on a hill. Um, the New Jerusalem, that imagery in Revelation where the gates are always open, you know, and, um, you know, it's a, it's a place where the, the tree of life is, is uh, there in the center of the city and so forth. Um, Reagan sort of sees America in both of those, using both of those metaphorical devices. Um, and, and you're right. I mean, it's, it's so interesting because uh, this concept that Americans really are good, a good and gracious and generous people, that, that as Reagan himself said in his 1984 um, uh, RNC uh, address, that we are not the cause of the ills of the world, um, that we're, we're, we're the force for good. We're the good guys. Um, we're the white hats. And, you know, the Soviets, they're the evil empire and they're, they're, they're the bad guys. Um, uh, and when you, when you mention that, or when you tie national innocence with the innocence of Reagan, I think that's really, really profound because he is, he's a great guy. I mean, it's like, if you look at Donald Trump, you know, just make America great again, no one's convinced that Donald Trump is a good man. You know, no one is convinced of this. He doesn't even claim that for himself, you know, but Reagan is this wholesome, you know, person and even his enemies, even his political enemies know and believe that he is a good man. So he sort of personifies national innocence. 
One of the things that was surprising was when you begin to talk about Amer- uh, national exceptionalism in the relationship between the American people and the land. I didn't expect mm. that. That was sort of a little surprise. I go, oh, how does that work? So, I mean, I understand the westward expansion, but yeah. it, that's as far as I could go with that. Can, uh, talk about that. What is? How does it express itself in the relationship with the land? Yeah, so going, going back to the Puritans, the Puritans write about how bountiful the land is. Um, and it's sort of this is, is a way to get more people to come over, you know, and to, to be colonists, um, so that the colonies won't, won't themselves fail. But another book that, that your listeners might, might be interested in if they're not aware of it already is uh, a book called uh, The Intellectual Construction of America, American Exceptionalism from 1492 to 1800. It's written by a Johns Hopkins historian by the name of Jack Green. It's one of the best books I've ever read. It's a wonderful book. Jack Green talks about the, the newness of the land, and he spends a lot of time talking about the newness of the land. When they come up, when the colonists, when the explorers, you know, what have you, when the Europeans come over to America, um, starting with Columbus and, and continuing all the way through into the, well into the 19th century, the, the, the newness of the land, the bounty of the land, um, these are, are, this is a categorical newness. It's not just, oh, we, we found it, this is a new, like it's a new place, this is like a new island or something that we didn't know was there. It's, it's almost like they, you know, if we could think about it in our terms, um, it's like if we, if we read a newspaper today that these astronauts returned from um, a 10-year journey, that maybe we have this vague recollection of them leaving back in 2006 on some mission, and we've sort of forgotten about them, but then they come back, and they come back, and they get off their spaceship, and they... They have these these people from another planet that they've been to see. They bring fruits and they bring animals and they bring these things back and they describe what they've seen and it's like that would that would completely change um, our whole worldview categorically. And and this is what um, this is what's being this is what's happening in the colonial period. It's 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 limitless. It just goes on and on, and the bounty is beyond imagination. Well. You know, the Europeans can't help but put, but put this categorical newness in a theological term to talk about it like the Garden of Eden, you know. Um, and, and those notions, those Edenic notions carry on well into the 19th century. Lewis and Clark talk about the bounty of the land when they go and they go into the plains and they, they go all the way to the Pacific Ocean. They talk about the, the vastness, the beauty of it, the, the, the potential of it. It's, it's this enormous potential that's just waiting to be unlocked. Right by the by Americans, but there's a, there's a double edged sword there too, because on one hand the land inspires them because they can see the glory of God in the land. It's so sublime and beautiful, right? right. So it right. it inspires them, and but at the same time there's this idea that they have to subdue it, that they have to dom- dominate it, that they have to take control and possess it. Right, and this is where the dominion mandate of Genesis one comes in, right? Uh, Genesis one twenty six and twenty seven, where God says, I'm making man in my own, my own image, and, and, and you're to rule and subdue the earth. And so someone like John Quincy Adams uh, talks about the dominion mandate when, during the whole 54-40-year fight controversy in the 1840s, um, that, the, that the British um, are not being good stewards of the land, that the, that the Native Americans aren't being good stewards of the land. They're not, making it, they're not cultivating it. They're not making it produce. So they need to be you know, displaced. And the Americans who really know how to fulfill this mandate need to go and they need to take it. Yeah, that was the irony there. So um, 
The last one that you talk about is the concept of uh, glory, mm-hmm. which I thought was very interesting. Um, a lot of reasons. I think that 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 part of American exceptionalism seems to be working really strongly right now. Right. When you hear, you know, in Donald Trump's campaign, uh, we're going to make America great again. Okay, sure. it's this national glory. Right. So, talk about a little bit about how that has played out historically. Okay, so what I do in the chapter, I mean, glory is sort of a amorphous, you know, abstract term. Um, and the way I sort of cast it is, is I look at, um, I look at Christian um, American history curricula. It's designed for about, you know. Hi, um, late, late middle school into high school curricula. This on, is on this is contemporary. Contemporary stuff, yes. Yeah, so I look at Bob Jones University Press. I look at a Becca Books, based out of Pensacola Christian College in Florida, and then I look at Veritas Press, which is based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And um, just look at some of those uh, U.S. history curricula and evaluate it historically, and as well as is is this. Are these curricula t- training students to think Christianly, and are they? Is it training people, you know, students to think historically? And uh, unfortunately, what I found is very—it's it's got very closed exceptionalist language. It it looks back and tr- it looks back to the past, to American history, as being like a glorious past, something to something to uh, we need to recover, like a golden age. Um, this is actually one of the things that Anthony Smith talks about in his book Chosen Peoples. That this is a common element in uh, the way that you know, Western countries have historically seen themselves. That, that glorious past, golden age type um, rhetoric is very common. And he traces that uh, in his intellectual history. So in, in American exceptionalism, this, um, this notion that we have this glorious past and it needs to be recovered is, is a very common thing. It's interesting to see the way they treat um, uh, moral issues. For example, slavery. The Bob Jones curriculum looks at slavery and was like, yeah, it was there, you know. It, it was one of the causes of the Civil War. It wasn't the main cause of the Civil War, but it was there. You know, it was bad, and ultimately we got rid of it. Um, and I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, but that really is the way that the Bob Jones people look at it. But they don't, when they look at the Lewinsky scandal, oh, man, this is like super evil, you know. This is a, a sign of American decline, and, and come on. I mean, it, it's, it's very unbalanced. Yeah, and there's also the idea that uh, well, the slave masters were kind to their to their slaves, and as long as they were kind, you can be a slaveholder. You could be back then and be a good Christian because you were nice to your slaves. Right, and that's that comes through in the Veritas stuff um, that slavery, you know, as it's, as it's defined in the New Testament, um, you, know, it, you know, slavery itself per se is not sinful. It's how you treat your slaves, and if the slaves had been more themselves, if they had been more submissive, then, you know, they would have been all right, and God would have blessed them more. It's interesting that uh, the author of, of that particular article in the Veritas, um, he also wrote the article on the American Revolution. Um, but his treatment of something like Romans 13, where, you know, hey, why weren't the colonists being submissive to the king? You know, he sort of has a double standard. The slaves should have been submissive, but the American colonists, they, they didn't really have to be submissive. Yeah, and there's also, totally, you don't bring this up, but there's also a gender component in this. There is a gender component in this, big time. Okay. What do you <laughs> so, uh, now, you're, when you're talking about these schools, are, you're talking about a private Christian schools and homeschooling curriculum, right? Is this? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the people who are writing this curriculum, are they trained historians or are they 
pastors or yeah, education like, people? I mean, they're education people. Like so for Rebecca and for Bob Jones, those those people I think are I think their background is in like history education. Okay. Um, in terms of the Veritas curriculum, you have a whole bunch of people that are writing um, articles, um, you know, that, that, are, that cover specific specific subjects. Um, some of them are historians; others are theologians and pastors, and so it's sort of a it's sort of a um, it's a diverse crowd that writes for Veritas. There's not, um, you know, like the Veritas curriculum isn't just one author. Now you don't uh, you don't deny that America is exceptional in world history, uh, but it's very uh, circumscribed. You have, a very, you have a, a very limit on what that means, and so you define an, uh, an open exceptionalism instead of a closed exceptionalism right. that you think is useful. Right. What is open exceptionalism first? That's the first question. And okay, what, so how do you take all this and make it be something that, is, that can work? <coughs> Okay, so going back to our discussion on civil religion, um, you know, there's sort of a parallel. So I talk about closing open exceptionalism, and there's sort of a parallel way to understand civil religion. Civil religion can be can be cast in salvific terms, and it can also be cast in just political or historical or social terms. Um, and so I draw from Seymour C- uh, Martin Lipset uh, and Peter Gardella and Richard Hughes when I think about this, as well as others as well, James Caesar from the University of Virginia as well. Um, so, so Lipset calls, uh, he talks about the American creed. Um, he looks at five features of the creed, liberty, egalitarianism, individualism, populism, and laissez-faire. That's how he describes it. Uh, Richard Hughes talks about the American creed as well. He, ta- he looks at the, the Declaration of Independence, particularly the, um, you know, all men are created equal cla- uh, statement there. And then Gardella looks at uh, four, he calls values defining American civil religion. He talks about personal freedom political democracy, world peace, and cultural tolerance. So if, if exceptionalism is defined in strongly religious or theological terms, I say that's closed exceptionalism because it divides people up in terms of the chosen and the other. It's exclusivistic, right? But this is a, this is a point some people would make against this. They would say, exactly, religion mucks it up. You bring re- religion is the problem. It's theology that's the problem. With 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 exceptionalism, yes. With in defining exceptionalism, yes, that's true. So we need to extract um, all religious uh, references from our nation and from any of our documents and for anything, you know, uh, God we trust and all that, because this is a problem. So that religion itself becomes. The problem, not the misuse of its concepts. I don't go that far. I mean, so I know you don't, but I'm just saying that this is yeah. ex- that's a, you're giving ammunition to people who would actually say that that it's actually the Christian religion that has caused all these problems. Yeah, and so part of my goal in the book, <laughs> part of my goal in the book, is to say that because see, closed exceptionalism, even though it draws these theological concepts from the Christian religion. It's not the Christian religion that's the problem. It's the perversion of the Christian religion that's the problem. Christianity does not deserve the blame for um, the you know bad things undertaken by Americans in the name of religion because this isn't Christianity. This is not the gospel. The gospel is not is not 
um, you know, justifying slavery. The gospel is not justifying jingoism and world empire and the exploitation of native peoples and on and on and on and on and on. That's not Christianity. And so that's part of the part of the goal of the book is to say Christianity does not deserve the blame for this. And religion does not deserve the blame for this necessarily. I mean, so to, to use another, to look at another source, another historical source, Alexa de Tocqueville's um, Democracy in America. He is, you know, comes over to America in the 18, 1831, 1832. He writes um, the first volume in 1835, second volume in 1840. And he looks at, he looks, he's not, he's not a religious person. He's a nominal Catholic, but he notices what's striking to him is that America has no established religion. But he says that the Christian religion shapes and forms the American values and the way he calls it the more American mores, American manners, in such a way as to be very edifying to the society, right? Um, and in fact, he would say that because, because Christianity is, is not the established religion, that religion actually flourishes even more and is even, is even more of a, of a, of a social good for Americans in the absence of a, of an established church. Um, this is, uh, you know, he, he, he's, again, he's not a Christian. He's not an evangelical. He's, he's a nominal Catholic. Um, but he sees that religion has a, a a good role to a good role to play in society, and so if you look at civil religion um, as a as a political or a, or a social construct, um, libertarianism, egalitarianism, um, tolerance, uh, laissez faire, these things are not necessarily like Christian doctrines, but they are consistent with Christianity in terms, especially of the way that. Um, Christianity talks about the dignity of the human person having been created in the image of God. I mean, that's that's not a Christian dogma, but it is consistent with what Christianity teaches about the human person, about human personhood. So, tell me about um, open open exceptionalism that you uh, are saying is sort of the antidote to this whole thing, and what does it look like? Yeah. And and, and one thing that you're concerned about, I think, is you want to give people. Uh, the space, the room, the freedom to critique America vigorously. Right. I do. And not to fall back on, well, America's special, therefore we can't, um, mm. you know, critique it. Exactly. Exactly. That is, that is, that is part, part and parcel of what open exceptionalism affirms. So with open exceptionalism, first of all, we recognize as Americans that we are not perfect. We are human beings. We make mistakes, right? But because of our founding, our founding is on ideals uh, like natural rights, like personal liberty, like uh, the you know equality. Um, Americans have never been perfect in their expression and their application of these things. But Americans have never lost sight of their ideals, and Americans have also um, been on in pursuit of those ideals pretty consistently since the founding. By fits and starts, but certainly, um, you know, Americans have been on have been on the path to 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 champion those ideals. Generally speaking, historically, uh, so a recognition that we're not there yet, a recognition that we're not perfect, a recognition that we don't do these things perfectly all the time, is part and parcel of open American exceptionalism. The notion that hey, yeah, we are a unique country. We were, we do have a very unique founding, and it is special, and it is great. It is, it, there are a lot of great things about it. And these things are worth pursuing, um, and worth not giving up on, even even worthy of sacrifice uh, in, in an effort to pursue those ideals. 
I think that's that's one of the one of the beginnings of this. And I look at it in my last chapter. I look at W. E. B. Du Bois as I think is a picture of this. I mean, W. E. B. Du Bois talks about American identity. Of course, his his perspective on this is unique. I mean, I'm a I'm a I'm a Caucasian, so I don't I don't share um, some of this heritage. But what he does in, in Souls of Black Folk is he he looks at the dual identity of of, of African Americans. That you know, he's the way he talks about it is is as at one time Negro and at one time American, that that uh, he would not want to wash away his Africa or his Africanism out of his identity, but he also would not want to wash away America out of his identity. That Africa has much to learn from America, and America has much to learn from Africa. What he's doing there, what he's getting at, is that um, he has such a high view of the human person in terms of his national identity. That I think is really consistent with open exceptionalism, very helpful with American exceptionalism because it's consistent with these founding ideals that our country starts off with. Are we consistent? No. Was Thomas Jefferson perfect when he articulated this? Heck no. Absolutely not. I mean, look at the guy. He's a, he's a slave owner. But when he articulates these principles, they lay the, the foundation for someone like Du Bois to come along and, and, and champion those ideals. Without the Declaration of Independence, Du Bois would never have had anything to any, any platform to speak upon. Neither would Martin Luther King. Neither would Abraham Lincoln. Neither one. Neither would uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton or Susan B. Anthony. No, none of these people would have any basis to make their arguments outside of you know these ideals that our nation was founded on. Um, I mean, I could go on and on about this, but you probably have another. No, another Amer- Americans have not. We uh, have not been very kind to to critics of America. That's true. <laughs> every time there's every time there's a war or something, and there's critics who rise up and say this is wrong, uh, they're called anti-American. Anti-American, yeah, exactly. I mean, we see that recently in the war on terror, and certainly going back into the Cold War. I mean, Harry Truman's loyalty oath that he makes all federal employees take in the early fifties. I mean, that's you know, that's that's shocking, you know, and you know, it's but it's, it is part of it's part of our it's part of this 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 tension between closed and open exceptionalism. And a part of it is being anti-American in terms of critique. It's part of being an American. Exactly. Because in, in, in another way, we are really good at self-critique. That's true. Except and if you're the, the guy that's doing it at the, at the moment that you're doing it, you know, uh, you're going to get blasted. But uh, yeah. later on, somebody's going to come along and say, hey, he was right, which we see this all the time. Oh, yeah. And, and so someone like Barack Obama, I think, has a really historically um, correct articulation of exceptionalism. When he when he gave a speech at the Pettus Bridge, you know, last year, um, marking the uh, 50th anniversary of the uh, Selma March, you know, he, he talked about very much a, a very national self-examination way about American exceptionalism. And this goes all the way back to the Puritans and to the Jeremiah um, in the of the of the 17th century. This is a very, you know. This notion that, well, you can't question America, that's not Amer- that's pure, that's very much American. It's a tradition that goes back hundreds of years, all the way back to the Puritans. So someone like Obama, you know, like Rudy Giuliani says, oh, well, he doesn't, he hates America. But, but when he talks about America in critical terms, that's very exceptionalist language. It's a different kind of exceptionalism, but it's exceptionalism nonetheless. Right. So, Right now, in this political moment that we are, how do, how do you see this American exceptionalism working its way in the political discourse of, of the nation? Yeah. Especially, you know, with uh, 
Donald Trump? How do you see it in Donald Trump? How do you see it in, in Hillary Clinton? How do you see it in Bernie Sanders? Because I think all, all these people, even though they may be on a wide spectrum, extreme <coughs> spectrum of, of political views, they yeah. do share at certain points a common language about American exceptionalism. They, do, they definitely do. I mean, Hillary Clinton talks about the, about America being indispensable, much in the same way that Albright did, for example. Bernie Sanders reminds me of Martin Luther King and his promissory note um, imagery that, uh, you know, the promise of America has not yet been fully realized for huge amounts of people, especially young people, African-Americans and so forth. And then so that's I mean, what what they sort of articulate is something that I would maybe even say is, I mean, I wouldn't want to speak in, in pure terms, but. There's certainly aspects of open exceptionalism in that in that kind of language. With Donald Trump, I mean, he's sort of a low-hanging fruit. I mean, right? I mean, his whole his whole "Make America Great Again." Um, what, what exactly does that even mean? We don't even really know. But um, I read an article today just talking about how. Um, what is it about winning? He winning, winning, is winning, it, winning, right? And glory. It's very much. Yeah. It's definitely not about innocence. Well, I mean, it certainly carries some of that. I mean, like everything that America does by by virtue of America doing it is right and good and innocent. If America does it, that means it's good. That means it's just if America is doing it. So as long as America is leading the way, as long as America is making the Mexicans build the wall, that's a good thing, both for Mexico and for America. I mean, that's the way he talks. Right. So. Yeah, innocence is still part and parcel of his view of exceptionalism. Isn't he also the it's idea not, of chosen? That's the thing about his. It's very secular. Like He doesn't have God talk in any of his exceptions. Right, which is, I had asked you about that, about the fact that this concept, of course, over time, with the Puritans, it started as a, a theological, very religious-laden language yeah. and connection, but over time it has been secularized, yeah. and so that it becomes really just... Uh, in. Uh, uh, Trump's case, it becomes really just an exercise of raw power in terms of, the, of chosenness and commission. It right. is, we have the strength, therefore we should use it. Might makes right very Hobbesian in, in its conception of justice, right? Exactly. When do you, uh, how do you hope that this book will be used? Because who is the audience that, you know, this is one thing that I struggled with the book was exactly who the audience was. Um, because it seemed like you were speaking, on one hand, you were speaking to uh, lay uh, Christian people, maybe who are sitting in the pews, who mm-hmm. have never really thought through all this. But you're also appealing, I think, to uh, scholars to to really sort of really understand all the theological implications that this this American exceptionalism has carried. Right. I mean, ultimately, my goal for the book is that, you know, when Hillary and Donald Trump have their first debate, that the book comes up. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, no. I mean, no, you're right. I mean, my, my audience is to um, church people, to professing, you know, Christians, confessional people, uh, not just evangelicals, but certainly, um, you know, any, any, any person who sits in the pew where American exceptionalism is a, is a topic of conversation. So certainly in uh, mainline churches, it's, it's certainly relevant to mainline denominations. It's certainly re- relevant to American Catholics, American, American evangelicals. Um, if in, a, in a very broad Christian tradition, I, I hope that this book is valuable 
um, I would like to see the book used in, in, um, uh, Sunday schools and, and, uh, circle groups who, you know, of people, church people who, uh, talk about intellectual things. It's an American religious history book as well. So I hope that it's used in classrooms by scholars to discuss, um, that American exceptionalism is an aspect of American religious history because it certainly, it certainly is in a very broad way. And I don't even think that I've even taught, I mean, I just feel like I've scratched the surface on this in terms of a, um, American exceptionalism as a, uh, subject, a topic in American religious history. Now you. So yeah, it's for lay people, but it's also for students. It's not just for religious people. It's for anyone that's interested in American exceptionalism. It carries so much theological weight that it's relevant not just for church people. It's relevant for the American population as a whole. Now there was. A th- I'm going to back up a little bit. You you had included in your book a lot of with different places uh, African American history and how they actually took the brunt. The, the bad end of the deal on this American exceptionalism oftentimes mm. because they were seen as it was sort of their <coughs> destiny. It was their, if America was to be great, it was their destiny to be the enslaved class that was going to make America great. Right. Uh, so, but there's another thing that I, I don't know if you, ex- there is a, a form of exceptionalism that African Americans themselves took on mm-hmm. that Martin Luther King expressed that mm-hmm. African Americans had a mission to the nation. That's right. Within the nation to call the nation back uh, exactly right. to its yeah. values. So there yeah. is this sort of a uh, kind of a white exceptionalism and a black form of uh, African American form of exceptionalism. Can you talk a little about that? Because I thought that would be would be very interesting to discuss. Yeah, and that's that's sort of an issue for further study. I mean, I, 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 that's that's like the next book, right? Is African American um, exceptionalist language metaphors, um, certainly theology. Um, so I talk about a little, bring up a little bit about, about James Cone in the book, about um, how he talks about how um, the, the uh, Negro spirituals carry very, you know, nationalistic language to it. Um, certainly uh, what you just said about um, Martin Luther King is absolutely true. Uh, one thing that's really interesting about Du Bois, um, when he writes in, uh, Gift of Black Folk, his book, Gift of Black Folk, that came out in 19, uh, 1924, I believe, sometime in the early 20s. Um, man, what's so really, what's so fascinating about The Gift of Black Folk, and I recommend that to your readers as well, or to your listeners as well, he, he talks about um, how America would never have been um, a reality at all without the contribution of African Americans. Um, and it's fascinating. He looks at, he takes a whole history of the African experience in America and looks at the contributions made by African Americans saying African Americans are indispensable, uh, to the American nation, not just in terms of labor, slave labor. I mean, obviously, I mean, that's the thing that you could immediately go to. It's, it's slave labor that is the basis for American economic, political, and military power, um, leading all the way up to this point. I mean, Ta-Nehisi Coates makes this argument as well more recently. But what, what's interesting really about what Du Bois says is that, Ameri- that African Americans' spiritual contribution is also very important. Um, he says, he talks about it like this. He says that African Americans um, ha- are the most sublime example of Christian perseverance under persecution that you can find anywhere in the world, world history period. 
says that their forbearance, their patience, their long suffering, their expressions of love under the weight of persecution, um, you know, are consistently shown in their centuries long experience in America as slaves and as persecuted as a persecuted people group. And uh, African-Americans saw themselves as being in Egypt under bondage of slave masters and uh, were their religion was very much infused with a liberatory sensibility that God was going to deliver them from these white masters. Exactly. And and that theme and that also but their bigger vision of that, which Martin Luther King brought out, was the idea that we will we're going to teach our white brothers. That's right. What through Christi- our example. Yeah. Through our moral example. Right. What what Christianity or true Christianity is. That's right. Yeah. I mean, he talks about that in a lot of the speeches he gives. He talks about it in letters from a Birmingham jail that, uh, you know, we're going to you are our, you see yourself as our enemies, but we are going to make you our friends. We are going to make you our brothers because we are going to love you, even though you persecute us. Um, very biblical terms, very Christian terms. And, you know, when, when Martin Luther King expresses this, I mean, this is what the gospel is. I mean, this is, this is the right expression of the Christian religion, not the manifest destiny, the chosen nation, the divine commission, the, even the sacred land and the, you know, glorious past kind of stuff. That's hijacking Christian theology. But what Martin Luther King does is he's actually expressing um, in the truest form, the Christian ethic. I mean, Du Bois, Du Bois is more of an agnostic. He's not really a, a, a Christian. Um, but, but even Du Bois, when he talks about American identity, he talks about, you know, the, 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 the Christian ethic, the ethic of Jesus to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, to love your enemies and so forth. And he talks about this as part and parcel of, of the human person and identity as a human person and extending that to America. Um, he looks at Americanism and and what I would say closed American exceptionalism as, you know, falling from that Christian ethic. Right, and that the, the, the white Christians had never, ever lived out the ethic of Jesus. It exactly. was a failure. It was a exactly. complete failure. And then you see it again in Malcolm X, mm-hmm. who he's calling people, African-American people, out of Christianity, saying it has it is a religion that is based on the supremacy of the white race. That's right. So uh, it would be, I think, a book on black uh, African-American exceptionalism all by itself would be really an interesting book. Maybe somebody's already written it. I don't know about it. Well, stay tuned. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I have one final question for you, John. Uh, what are you working on now? Well, I just finished an abridgment of Alexis de Tocqueville's, um, excuse me, Democracy in America. Uh, that's coming out with Lexham Press uh, later this year. Um but I've got a couple of things that I'd like to pursue next. Um, perhaps a, uh, um, a religious biography of John Foster Dulles, for example, I think would be really interesting as, a, as an extension of this conversation on exceptionalism. Also, um, race and American exceptionalism. Um, so uh, in the early 80s, a lot of your listeners will be familiar with uh, Reginald Horseman's book, Race and Manifest Destiny, um, a book that sort of, you know, takes a, a continuing step from his project, talking about race and American exceptionalism, sort of an updated view, is something that I've toyed around with as well. So, you know, this year I hope to put together another book proposal and pursue something new this year along those lines. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah, John, thank you. you've been very generous with your time. Thank you so much for, for talking to my listeners. 
Thank you to the listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. Contact me through my website at www.lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.